Hello! It's me again. This is the Dishcast, coming at you whether you like it or not. Uh, today is, uh, I'm already slightly giggling here, but today is a challenge for me because I am interviewing, so to speak, or having conversation with one of my oldest and dearest friends. And I don't do this a lot, um, mainly because I don't have that many old and dear friends <laughs> who haven't actually abandoned me over the years. But there is one who has tenaciously stuck to our mutual loyalty, and that is Mr. Neil Ferguson. Uh, N-I-A-L-L, not the guy who mispredicted everything about COVID in the United Kingdom, uh, who now, well, how would you like to be described? Um, you're a historian. You work at the Stanford Institute. And what's the other, you run this, this forecasting sort of business analyst company called Green Mantle. Uh, and, and what else should we throw into that? You've been the author of, of, of what seems to be an extraordinary number of erudite books. Um, not all of which I have read, but The Pity of War was pretty amazing. I dipped into the Rothschild biography, which was astonishing, your first big uh, tome, as it were. And lately, um, very recently, this new book called Doom is why we're fucked by, by <laughs> Neil Ferguson. Uh, tell us, because I do this, and we'll talk about Doom, we do this every time, but um, you grew up in Scotland. Uh, and uh, went to a school called Glasgow Academy, which, as I recall, has an extraordinarily strong influence on your, the rest of your life. Um, and your Scottish identity also is part of your, your life. So, uh, uh, and when did we first meet? You remember, and I, 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 I may remember once you jog my memory, but we met at Magdalen because we were both at Oxford together. We were both <clears throat> scholars. Uh, which is a fancy title for people who were given nice gowns when we got to Oxford. And we both studied history, modern history, although I switched a little bit later in my term. And uh, we were part of a rather illustrious band of history students from Magdalen College, Oxford, which I am immensely proud. Um, so we met, you were saying, when you came up for an interview. Yes. Uh the the year must have been 1981 yep and it was uh the end of that year and in those days indeed it may still be the case undergraduates uh, wishing to study at oxford or cambridge uh, students rather at school wishing to study at oxford or cambridge had to sit an examination and then be interviewed it wasn't like you know harvard and yale where they find that if your parents are loaded uh, then run a series of checks on your ethnicity uh, before considering your intellectual quality. We had to we had to sit an exam and be interviewed. And I came from the windswept north from Glasgow. Uh, it was snowing, and uh, was introduced at some point to a small number of of already uh, studying undergraduates of whom you were one. And I remember thinking. This is one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> I really must try to get into this college uh, if they're all like this, uh. little realizing that you were sui generis. But that was when, when we first met, and uh, uh, the, re the rest is history, at least in my case, because I've really done nothing else except history since, since then. But yeah, it was, it was Oxford in the early 80s. A another world, another era. Yes, we were both... Um... 
We were both uh, basically loyalist middle-class people, really, um, meritocrats in our self-understanding, at least. And Well, class, of course, mattered much more and still matters much more than, than race in, in England. And what defined our early years was that we were not toffs. We had not gone to Eton or Winchester. We did not have uh, parents with titles. We would were not immaculately turned out in in corduroys and, and, and tweeds. We were middle-class boys from what were then called grammar schools, uh, not boarding schools. And we therefore had a slight chip on our shoulders because obviously the Etonians patronized us, knowing rightly that they were going to be prime minister and that we would not be. And it's we annoying refer- that they were We're referring here that. to one young Boris Johnson who was... Was he a year below you, or I think yes. he was two years below me, right? He um, was. And David Cameron was even younger, so young that we didn't encounter him at Oxford. But at true. any event, they knew they were going to be prime minister, and we uh, reasonably had a chip on our shoulders about that, but naturally concluded that we were cleverer than them and uh, that they'd walked into Oxford on entitlement and privilege, and we had worked our way there. So we we had a series of... Uh, things in common. I'm I'm a Scotsman, as you observe. You are from an I- Irish Catholic background, and so there is that common uh, Celtic sense that the English are not entirely to be relied upon. But what brought us together, and I think this is is not just a self-indulgent point, but one that has a general relevance, is that we did have a similar sense of of humour, and that was period in in britain it was sort of late punk punk had happened in the late 70s and it had been influential on me certainly and what we were doing at that point was we were trying to find the outer limits of what one could say publicly because it seems as if as if the sex pistols had sort of gone there and there really was nothing left beyond you know god save the queen anarchy in the uk but we were still trying to find that extra thrill and we found it in being conservative because there was one thing even more obnoxious than being a punk rocker and that was being a young thatcherite so you very quickly made me find a political uh, location to the right and and i think the reason that it was attractive was that it so offended the etonians who were at best wet conservatives but mostly either uh, social democrats or screaming socialists so that's to me that's kind of what brought us together i think it was the realization that we could be even more outrageous than the sex pistols by just supporting margaret patch and we i mean there was a kind of uh chic to that in a way a kind of counter chic that 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 as you say there was nothing more outrageous really to the established elites than for us to celebrate this rather middle-class woman who was upending the English aristocracy and also upending uh, various socialistic experiments that had uh, taken place in Britain since the Second World War. And we were kind of cutting edge back then. And so I understand. I know then. It's just the time goes by. We have to live another 20 years and maybe things will will shake out a little differently. But yeah, and, and, and also... We just had a great deal of fun. I mean, that was the other thing. I mean, it was it was it was a very carefree time in a very difficult and polarizing 
debate in Britain. That was when Thatcherism was dividing the country very deeply and very profoundly. We were there from, I was there from 81 to 84. Um, you were there a little bit longer and then I disappeared to America. Um, I want to move forward to the book you just delivered. Um, it's called Doom, which seems to be a, uh, a familiar theme. Uh, it's certainly a theme I've always warmed to. I, I am convinced that we're doomed uh, and <laughs> have long believed this. And my view of it has only intensified over recent years and uh, the last decade or so. So I was really interested to read your book about this. And, and what I came away with, and tell me if this is the wrong conclusion, I misread it in some way, was that we may well be doomed. We can't tell. It will happen, probably. The history of this doesn't give us any clear, obvious guideline that there are multiple factors involved in when great catastrophes happen. There are bad leaders. There are, more importantly, bad middle people. There are network effects. Um, there are political impacts. Um, and these catastrophes, as they happened in human history, seem to have almost uh, not, not one single explanation and not one single way of understanding them. In this, this case, this book is really a dismantling of any idea of a sort of linear or simple history. It's a mess. History is a mess. I, I wish I could give you a, a cyclical model of history that would spit out with some predictive power what the next disaster will be and when it will strike, but that's not how it works. So part of the point of writing this book was to interrogate the appeal of doom, because when you and I would joke about we're doomed, which was a line from a British sitcom, Dad's Army, part of what made that line significant was that it was a laugh line. The Scottish a uh, soldier in the home guard would repeatedly say, we're doomed, even when quite minor things went wrong. So doom is one of these words which, for me, has an ironical quality. We are fascinated by doom. Doom is there in all the great religions. It is there in science fiction. We like to watch movies about doom. And we're fascinated uh, in the way the media covers events by the potential for calamitous extinction level disaster and and yet it doesn't happen uh, and the cassandras and and the the prophets have predicted the end umpteen times and it hasn't happened and it will eventually happen at some point i mean if only because gravitational forces pulling the earth into the sun but the truth is that we don't really have the end of the world to worry about we have a whole bunch of disasters of varying shapes and sizes that occur at random intervals that can't be predicted. And that's the problem. Uh, it's not, not as glamorous as the end of the world. It's just more like uh, yet another messy uh, disaster that you thought you had predicted, but ultimately weren't prepared for. On the other hand, if you were a Cherokee in the early 16th century, merrily getting up in the morning with no idea that some people had just arrived on your shores and bringing with them uh, devastating smallpox, which over a period of about a century, but most of it happening quite quickly in the early part, up to something like 80 to 90% of the population were wiped out. Now, if that isn't doom localized, I don't know what would be. And, and clearly the, that civilization as it was never came back. It, 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 it's, it, there, there were remnants of it. 
but the situation in the Americas before the Europeans arrived was completely destroyed by these viruses um, within a matter of decades. So that was yes. doom, right? <laughs> right. Lots of civilizations, most civilizations have, have gone. And uh, and these extinction events are, are not too hard to find. The, 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 the destruction of the Native American populations was performed by a variety of different diseases that came from Eurasia to which they had no resistance. And the mortality rates were extraordinarily high. Uh, but you can find lots of civilizations that went extinct for other reasons, sometimes less spectacular reasons. Um, and, and I think that's, that's right. I mean, we have to recognize that in human history, uh, catastrophic events have happened. Uh, e even the Black Death, though it only killed about 30 or 40% of European populations, was probably the biggest disaster relative to global population, bigger even than the, uh, the great dying that occurred in uh, in, in the 16th and uh, 17th centuries in the Americas. Uh, but the species itself is incredibly resilient, and it will take uh, something that's uh, very hard to imagine to eradicate the, the species. That, that's, that's important because when we talk about the end time or uh, doomsday, we're, we're imagining uh, a species extinction event. I'm not even sure a nuclear war would have done that at the height of, of the Cold War. So... The theme of the book is that, yes, but, that but hold on a minute. If you if you don't have to contend with doom itself, not well, full doom, well, just doom light. I don't know. I think if if ninety percent of the population on Earth dies from a nuclear attack, I think that's fucking doom. I mean, I, I yeah, but that, that it wouldn't be that big a proportion of the population. Certainly, in, in any conceivable nuclear war that might be fought now, and and even at the height of the. Uh, you know the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis that wouldn't have been wouldn't have been anything close to ninety percent. But I think we're fascinated by the idea that that there'll be a, a pathogen that kills everybody. The first science fiction book is is Mary Shelley's The Last Man, which imagines a version of the plague that kills everybody except one dude. Who you'd have enjoyed that? <laughs> you'd have been fine <laughs> if it had been you. Be like, I haven't had to be honest. All those assholes have gone. <laughs> I haven't had the best luck with viruses. Let's let's just say. Let, let me just point that out. Uh, so I, I, Actually, I you have had the best luck because you, you. I'm were, alive. I mean, yeah. I remember when you told me you had HIV. I thought, oh God, there goes one of my best friends, and you're still alive. And that, I'm, that's that's the, that is the good news. I'm like but Trump. It, it, I'm like a, a kitchen roach. <laughs> it can't be you destroyed. <laughs> It's like my mother, actually. She's 85 and should have, you know, incredibly vulnerable, but still hanging on. Um, but but that's, I mean, I'm going to push back on this a little bit. I mean, when I think, for example, you're, you're living in Europe in 536 <laughs> AD, which is a pretty awful year, when these massive volcanic explosions happen, I think in Alaska, uh, you have no idea what's going on. The sky turns dark. There is almost a year on planet Earth in which no one really gets daylight. The crops fail. Famine happens. You talk about famine quite a lot in the book. Um, that must have felt, and indeed was for many, many people, certainly at the time, who believed that was the end of the world. Um, and what I would argue is that it kind of was. Now, we know that the Dark Age is a bit of a myth, obviously, that the Roman Empire was already in, in very fast decline. Uh, but when you just look at economic activity, even cultural and social activity, it was... It was almost a, 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 a thousand years before 
civilization in Europe got enough mojo back and enough population back to begin to re-energize. That is a long time. Uh, and surely that has some, humankind has some kind of memory of these disasters that keeps that imagination alive. Yes, and I think that's why they're kind of embedded in the great religions. Because when you're caught up in a big disaster, even if it's a relatively local one, like some spectacular fire uh, or a huge flood, what strikes me in many accounts of such disasters is that how often people say it felt like it was the end of the world. Uh, there's one of the, uh, I think it's uh, Pliny the Younger's description of Vesuvius is, well, as it was all uh, happening, I, I thought, well, it's the end of the world. Well, it wasn't. It was just a volcanic eruption in, in a part of Italy. But I think that sense that one's witnessed the end of the world is quite common when people experience uh, even a localized disaster. And that is why we have a keen sense of what the end of the world ought to be like. Uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of fire or there'll be a terrible disease. Or and a flood. All the thing and all will everything will be washed away we we've seen the trailer right there are lots and lots of sort of small versions of the end of the world that one can experience or or read about or, or see in a movie so we have a sense of what that would be like if it was on a global scale but i think what's what's obviously crucial about human history is that uh, that that even when we went to work with all the capabilities of industrial uh weaponry not once, but twice in the 20th century, and unleashed million, multi-million strong armies against one another with the express purpose of dealing death and destruction. Even then, uh, we didn't come close to uh, killing even as large a fraction of humanity as the Black Death did, and that was only about a third. So that, that for me, is is the cr critical point, that it's actually quite hard to imagine something that would be full-scale extinction, uh, though, though of course, it is within the bounds of, of, of possibility. And, and, for example, if you had a really massive level of volcanic activity, which we've forgotten about because there hasn't been a really big volcano since 1815, there is a sen sense in which you could get to the kind of extinction level where life on Earth would actually be impossibly difficult to sustain. So I'm not saying doom is non-existent. I'm I'm just saying that it's very low probability that we'd actually we'd actually be completely wiped out. And the reality, therefore, is that we have to grapple with something much more modest than that. And a good example of this is how we talk about climate change, because it's very clear that that average temperatures are rising, we haven't figured out how to stop them rising because we haven't figured out how to constrain China. And in this future that people talk about a lot, many bad things will happen, but it won't be the end of the world, not literally, not in the sense that... What it will it mean massive... Water. I mean, here's, my, here's, here's one of my worries about it, is that one of the things that happened uh, in 536 was another plague, which was partly facilitated by the, the shift of rodent populations actually in Russia and the mid-Asian steppes that moved south because it got too cold, met the black rats that got on the ships, and th thence it all happened. In other words, that once you have, and this is a critical part of the argument, once you have greater and greater networks in a way, more effective networks, more effective routes for human beings to move and to live and to work and to transmit these things, in the same way that, for example, in Africa in the 70s, the big building of these big roads were right through the center of Africa, building, linking up all these various hubs with lots of 
truck drivers, prostitutes, and all the rest of it, uh, <clears throat> led to the emergence of AIDS, which otherwise had been pretty, was there, but had been very localized. Now, we have never, uh, maybe correct me on this, but it does seem to me that the, the speed with which and the concentrated nature of the links around the modern world make the possibility of a greater tragedy much more instantly uh, tangible in every part of the planet, like COVID yeah. showed us. This is a key theme of the book, that we tend to think of, of there as being a, a, a relatively uh, impressive progress in our scientific knowledge. And it's certainly true that in the 19th and 20th centuries, we got much better understanding diseases than we'd ever been before. But in the same time frame, we also built the biggest and most vulnerable social networks because we connected the population of the world as never before. So by 2019, the volumes of passenger traffic on long-haul flights were just unlike anything that had ever been before. So this was a massive machine for spreading a novel pathogen, much, much uh, bigger and faster than anything before, just in the same way that the internet is this massive engine for for spreading memes, ideas, good and bad, that never really was possible before. So I think this is the, the critical insight. We kind of take two steps forward in understanding a virus, but then we take one step back in making it easier for the virus uh, to get uh, to get around, to, to spread through the population. Except I would say you make two steps forward and three steps back because the, 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 well, then you let, let's, I mean, if that well, was true, you would not, we would not be having, well, because we, because we were lucky, because we were lucky because COVID-19 was not that fatal. It had a very low IFR and, and, uh, uh, and it only, it only really affected very profoundly the old, even so the death rate was not that I imagine, and this is what kept going through my mind, and, and, and I, I read a lot about plagues and doing this. Now, it took us an uh, amazing record time, a year, basically, to get very sophisticated vaccines, and they have been the only really powerful weapon against this. Now, imagine that virus was four times as deadly and affected the entire population, not just one. Imagine it was slightly more transmissible, which you can imagine because there are variants that seem to have differences in. And now we wouldn't have had, we wouldn't have been able to shorten the time in getting a vaccine that much. In that period, the death toll would have been far higher than it is, uh, than it has mercifully been, although it is still, as we speak, and certainly in places like India, just it is extraordinarily awful death toll that's happening. Um, we shut down for the first time ever, really, vast sections of our economy. We've never done that before in a plague, in the comprehensive way in which we did. And yet, you know, we could we would have had lost a, a, a huge amount of people in the last twelve months, which would have helped us to understand that this really was a, a critical moment of doom. So we locked out. And, and the question is, uh, how do we? Is there any way in which we could avoid that particular moment of really bad luck, a really bad virus that's both fatal and easily transmissible, perfectly imaginable? We, are, we have a network that is globally unbelievably strong and very swift, although it's kind of fascinating looking back at things like 1918 that you saw that flu spread so quickly too. Right. It almost doesn't need these airplanes. I mean, it can do it anyway. Um, but, and we also see how Rome 
There were no major epidemics before civilization. I mean, human beings did not have these diseases when we were hunter-gatherers because we never encountered things that we hadn't already found ourselves over the millennia to be slightly uh, immune to. Uh, so that's, that would be my argument. Network, possibility, even with our science, even when we shut down our economies, which is another question I want you to get, I want to get to with you. So yeah, why, why, are, why are yeah. you so conf why are you so? Well, I'm not confident at all. I'm just <laughs> I, my point is that you you, you can't um, you, what, you, what you can't argue is that, um, that we haven't seen a more deadly coronavirus uh, than this one because we have, and it was called SARS, right? And then MERS. And the thing about really deadly viruses is that they don't spread very far because they're really deadly. Right. This was the Ebola problem too. The thing that makes SARS-CoV-2 so transmissible is precisely that it's not lethal. It's precisely that it actually can make people carry the virus with no symptoms at all, at least for a period of time. So it, it may be a mistake just to say to ourselves, well, imagine a, a, a virus this transmissible but really deadly. That, that's actually not that likely. Because it, right. it might blow itself out quite quickly. What you want is the, the, the sweet reason spot. SARS didn't, right, the reason SARS did not actually kill that many people was that the people it infected got ill very quickly and got sick and, and, and didn't get very far. Ebola didn't get beyond uh, West Africa for the same basic reason. SARS-CoV-2 occupied the sweet spot, if that's not the wrong term in which it, it, it was asymptomatic for long enough for people to spread it very far and very wide and it didn't really affect uh, younger people that much at all so in fact that's why it spread so far uh, it's easy to imagine worse pandemics certainly but of course uh, the black death of the 1340s or uh, the 1918-19 influenza happened at a time when medical science was much much less advanced you have lived through a worse pandemic than COVID-19, because HIV AIDS has killed more than 30 million people. It's actually three, killed nearly three times more people than COVID has so far, unless you buy the idea that the numbers have been vastly understated. But even if you take the economists' upper limit of COVID excess mortality, HIV AIDS is still far, far more deadly. And partly because and its own ability to transmit itself asymptomatically lasts up to a decade. Now, right. <laughs> and so we only. So we can imagine worse disease. We can imagine worse pandemics because we've lived through one, and you lived through getting the virus. So I'm not here to say we're fine, not at all. I'm here to say that we can't actually predict what the next disaster will be like. But what we can do is learn from the way we've handled this one how to do better, whatever form the next disaster takes. Because I think. For me, the really interesting point is that on paper, the United States was very well prepared for a pandemic, that, that it came top of the Economist Intelligence Unit rankings for preparedness in 2019. And so one of the mysteries I try to unlock in the book is, well, why, if we were so well prepared on paper, did we actually do so badly that we ended up with perhaps 600,000 uh, excess deaths? And that's the interesting piece, because... Even if we don't get the big one, we will get further disasters of varying sizes, and we've got to get better at dealing with them than we were in 2020. Now, I want to ask you about, yeah. key. take 1957, which I thought was a really interesting part of your book, because there we have <clears throat> a flu <clears throat> that seems to be particularly nasty. Uh, what was the difference, and, and Eisenhower 
barely mentioned it. <laughs> it was not one of the amazing things about 1918 is that Woodrow Wilson never made a public statement about the flu, and no statement was made in the House of Commons as it was destroying <laughs> the British population too. There was a different attitude towards disease. It was almost as if this is kind of normal. Uh, and uh, at the same time, there was a really successful mobilization in 1957 that th the American government seemed to be more capable, the American people seem more willing to sacrifice and to act collectively than they are today. Is that, is that a fair analysis, analogy? Of the... I, I don't want to overdraw mm -hmm. it because I think there are big differences. Uh, the U.S. did not have an especially bad experience of the 57-58 Asian flu, but globally... It was comparably bad as a pandemic. I think COVID will end up worse uh, when it's done, but uh, they're about level pegging in terms of the percentage of the world's population that, that, that they've both killed. So that event, 5758, is closer to ours, closer to COVID than 1918-19, which was a far worse, 30 or 40 times worse disaster. But in 1957-58, there were no lockdowns, there were no school closures, there was no state of emergency. And the Eisenhower administration simply said, well, the health advice that he got was, we can't stop this spreading. We'll, we'll just focus on getting a vaccine. And he said, fine. And a modest amount of federal money was made available. And the vaccine was found even faster than in our time. That's what people did. So two takeaways, or three maybe. One, they did not have the option to do a lockdown because you couldn't all work from home. Hardly anybody could work from home in 1957. So we had an option that really didn't exist in the 1950s when there was a pandemic. Second observation, I think that that meant that the, the, the federal government didn't even try to stop the spread because it knew it couldn't. And therefore, the focus had to be exclusively on the pharmaceutical response, which was impressively fast. Don't believe the people who say that what happened last year with our vaccines was unprecedented. They did it far faster in, in 1957. But the third point, which really struck me as I was reading, and it goes to things that you've written about, was that the American public, and this was true, I think, of the British public too, regarded a, a, a year of excess mortality as nothing terribly out of the ordinary and just something that you had to deal with. And this was a disease that killed young people, unlike COVID, which 80% of the, the people it kills are over 65. Roughly speaking, teenagers had 30% excess mortality in 1957. It was a disease that spread right through the young population and made many ill and killed uh, more than was normal. So in that sense, it was, it was worse, because imagine if we'd gone through that experience, the one we just had, but it wasn't just the elderly we were worried about. We were worried about little kids or, or, or teenagers. I struggle to imagine how much more uh, agonizing and frightening that would have been for me. So I think there's a very big difference in public sentiment and in the thinking of the, the bureaucracy of the government. In public sentiment, there is no politicization of the vaccine issue that I'm aware of. That public health issues don't seem to belong in the realm of partisan politics. Uh, and there's a kind of nimbleness uh, that one encounters looking at the records of the, the 1950s in the governmental response. CDC is a relatively young and relatively small organization, and they seem a lot quicker on their feet than their counterparts were in 2020. So two things seem different. Uh, the, uh, the America of today is unquestionably more deeply divided and capable of politicizing every issue. 
And the American government, the, the federal government, seems a much less uh, nimble and much more cumbersome uh, and ultimately ineffectual organization, despite its being larger and better resourced. Except you could argue, I think, that, that Operation Warp Speed, as Trump named it, was actually pretty successful. Like you could also argue that in Britain, for example, the Johnson decision to just opt out of the European process altogether and to put a lot of the responsibility onto a small team of someone. Uh, what was her name? I can't, I can't remember the name. Kate Bingham. Kate Bingham. Yeah, and, from, from the venture capital world. And that, was, that worked too. It yeah. saved his... He saved his skin politically. Um, well, it was the only thing that worked. Yeah. If you're going to have one thing work in a pandemic, make it the vaccine. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's odd because the, the countries that did really well at repressing the spread of the virus were not have not been especially good at, at getting people vaccinated. The countries that did really badly at containing spread had a pretty big incentive to get vaccination right. But vaccination is the one thing to get right. And yes, one doesn't want to overstate uh, the extent of the failure, because Operation Warp Speed was a triumphant success. The point of failure that fascinates me in this story is the, all those pandemic preparedness plans that didn't work, despite the fact that there were many of them, and on paper the US was well prepared, despite the fact that there's an undersecretary for preparedness whose one job it is, who kind of is missing in action throughout the year. And And you know, as I do, that there was a kind of very easy line of attack for journalists writing last year, which was to say this is all Trump's fault. Uh, and I think of James Fallows' piece in The Atlantic saying, uh, being present's like flying a light aircraft, and so if something goes wrong, it's pilot error. And I thought to myself as I was reading that, well, actually, being present is really not like flying a light aircraft at all. Being present is being in charge of a vast bureaucracy and you are not the person who sits there saying, we really need to get more test kits out to the population at the earliest stage of a pandemic. You have public health professionals, bureaucrats, whose job that is. And I would say counterfactually that if Joe Biden had somehow got the job a year earlier, I don't think we would have done that much better. Trump made any number of mistakes, but I'm not convinced that he's really the critical point of failure here. I think the critical point of failure is, as so often in disasters, is further down the chain of command. This is not to defend Trump, uh, who did a terrible job. But I think the counterfactual that we wouldn't have had excess mortality under a different president isn't convincing. And Ron Klain himself acknowledged that in 2019 when he noted that if the swine flu in 2009 had been as bad as COVID, the Obama administration would have had a disaster on its hands. So the thing that's interesting to me is that it feels as if, on both sides of the Atlantic, the people whose job it was did much less well than their counterparts in places like Taiwan and South Korea. And we ought to ask ourselves why that was. Because if there's one thing I'd like us to learn from this disaster, and it has been a disaster, it's, it's not simply that you need to have a non-populist president in case of emergency. I mean, yeah, that, that would be nice, but it's not necessarily going to save your ass if the bureaucracy can't actually cope despite being on paper very well prepared. And let me add one more point. I don't think this is peculiar to COVID. I think we've been effing it up in disaster after disaster in kind of similar ways. The financial crisis was something I wrote a lot about back in 2008 when I was writing The Ascent of Money. What was really striking to me there was that on paper, banks were regulated. On paper, there were all kinds of regulations of the mortgage market, and none of it worked. So I think we have arrived at a position which is, is peculiar to the administrative state, 
in which you can have the illusion of preparedness because you've written a really long document, you have lots of regulations, you have a PowerPoint presentation, your ass is covered, but none of it works when the disaster actually strikes. And my fear is that the next disaster, which could be a major cyber attack, will reveal just the same about our preparations for that. Uh, it brings back the uh, the the famous response of George W. Bush when he was told in August of 2001 that Al Qaeda was they had information Al Qaeda was going to strike in the U.S. by the CIA and he said, "Well, thanks, you covered your ass. What the hell am I supposed to do?" And you know, to some extent, uh, not entirely wrong, right? I mean, that 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 when you've given a threat that vague, that could take a million different forms, how do you prepare for something like that? Which brings me back to my thought that we're, we're fucked um, just because we've gotten through everything so far. Does it mean something bigger and worse is going to happen? And, and, and again, if you look at human civilization over the last like two to 3,000 years, I think your argument makes a huge amount of sense. When you look at it in terms of 200,000 years of Homo sapiens walking the earth, Clearly, we've been doing things in the last three to 4,000 years that grotesquely changed the metabolism of the, entire of the entire planet in many ways, and therefore may be unleashing these forces that, like every time, I mean, climate change will undoubtedly expose viruses that have never been exposed before. Deforestation will do the same thing. We don't know what's up there in the, in the tundra of Siberia that's going to somehow come out of the woodwork. Uh, and that all this is a kind of cautionary tale of, of, of classic you know, Tower of Babel dimensions, that we have constructed this amazing civilization, which has taken us, if you take, a, if you take sort of a, you know, Gregory Clark did this, uh, this long-term long view of a, even just wealth. And it's almost a vertical line only a few hundred years ago, out of, out of perspective from any other time in human history where we were much more... Uh, at peace with our environment and not as disruptive a species as we've become. Now, I watch documentaries and you'll see some termite infestation somewhere. And it, it won't be good for the termites in the long run because they'll get rid of all the, the stuff they eat. Um, but it, after a while, one species can fucking wipe out a lot. And we, we've already wiped out God knows how many species uh, even before. Uh, but let me, let me move to these events, the Black Death, these world wars, um, and especially plagues and calamities of that kind, they also are accompanied with major psychological and cultural and political shifts. But here again, when you go through them historically and look at them, there doesn't seem to be any really strong, coherent, single theme. They're very different. I mean, you can say, for example, that for example, Christianity definitely gained from 536 in a sense that people were actually kind of impressed with the way Christians handled the plague, and it was the final collapse of certain paganism. Um, uh, you, you, uh, you, you find a dramatic shift. You find social unrest. In the Black Death, you have all these extraordinary new groups coming up. You have anti-Semitism emerging in this very powerful way. You get the flagellants out there. Um, it's, and we had similarly last year, it seemed in the middle of what would be a, just an epidemiological crisis, we had this cultural sort of revolution in the middle of it on a subject utterly unrelated to a virus on police, a policing and on race. Uh, is that, 
a phenomenon that that is actually quite common in these periods. I don't seem to recall something like that in 1918, although that was obviously, there was a lot of organization about and celebration about the war, and the war was the primary psychological focus of everybody and the end of the war. And in fact, many of the reasons why the, the, the administration did not hype the, the epidemic was because they were keen to celebrate victory in, in Europe. And, and this stuff was sort of off message. Um, uh, so tell me, what do, you, what do you think are the main impacts of, of cultural and political uh, impacts of these experiences that we have collectively? You might think they bring us together. They don't seem to bring us together, actually. They do initiate by their very radical change that they've created in the environment, the possibility of other radical changes. Um, tell me, what's your, what's your feeling about these things? Well, you, you've, you've referenced the plague of Justinian, which was, it came after the great Icelandic volcanic eruption, sort of 541 AD it begins. And you can go even further back and look at the, uh, the plague of Athens that Thucydides writes about. And in, in, in accounts of both these disasters in the ancient world, there's a comparable and uh, causally connected plague of the mind uh, that, that, that uh, ancient historians discuss. Uh, in the Black Death in the 1340s, you have the extraordinary phenomenon of the flagellant orders, uh, which I remember reading about many years ago, probably when I was an undergraduate at Magdalen, and in Norman Cohn's book, The Pursuit of the Millennium. These were the the groups of men who would go from town to town, whipping themselves, flogging themselves uh, in acts of expiation to ward off further divine wrath. And I think actually in 1918-19, although it's hard to disentangle from the the chaos of the end of the war, there's no, uh, there is some connection uh, between the influenza pandemic and the plague of Bolshevism that appears to be spreading out of Europe. Russian Revolution, of course, it happened in 1917, but it's in 1918-19 that you actually think it's going to be everywhere. Uh, the red flag flies over the Glasgow uh, city chambers in 1919. Uh, so I, I think there is a pattern in which major uh, pandemics are associated with uh, comparable, simultaneous, call them plagues of the mind. Uh, and I don't use that in a necessarily pejorative sense, but there is clearly a combination of fear uh, and anxiety, the stress of excess mortality, which was compounded in 2020 with the lockdown. So you place large parts of the population under virtual house arrest, and you cut them off from work and normal social life. You wrote a column, and I remember gnashing my teeth when I read it, which says very much the same thing that I say towards the end of doom about the protests of 2020 following the the killing of George Floyd, that they had a religious character. And there were, there were medieval undertones. I say this uh, not to invite instant cancellation by Black Lives Matter, uh, but merely to point out that much of what was happening in the hundreds of locations in the US where protests took place had an explicitly religious character. For example, the, the groups uh, of, of white uh, uh, protesters washing the feet of two black pastors uh, in one location, the people who had uh, fake whip stripes on the back, I assume they were fake and made up. There's a lot of religious language of atonement and expiation in those protests, which were mostly by white people. Uh, I came across one uh, a man offering a prayer up, a 
seeking forgiveness for past acts of, of racism. So I don't think one can ignore the, the religious uh, undertone, if you like, of, of those protests, nor as an historian could, could one really look away from the non sequitur quality of, of having a huge nationwide protest about the issue of police violence towards African-Americans in the midst of a pandemic. And even although there wasn't much outdoor spread happening with this particular virus, it was still a little odd, really, to have mass gatherings at, at that particular moment. So I felt there were echoes of, of the 14th century and of, of ancient times, and perhaps also of 1918-19 in what went on last year. And I know you thought that because you wrote it. And it's bloody annoying when you've written a book and some bugger <laughs> goes on to Substack and, you know, basically scoops you for that. I'm sure you'll get over it. You, yes. Um, yeah, I was, you know, and also it's hard not to say, even though this is complicated, uh, the Black Death also did deeply undermine the religious authorities of the time. I mean, it, their ability to ward off evil, all the things that they said would prevent you from getting this was, was I mean, there was a lot of other things that the church was becoming less popular in, in many respects, but there was kind of uh, definitely a resurgence of personal religion and a kind of, uh, uh, which can be seen, and again, I, I, I'm not in favor of these simple causal explanations, but definitely you can look back and see the Reformation beginning, some of these ideas beginning to spread. The difference also then and now is that then you had this printing press, which was starting, and now you're, you're all locked inside, which normally would mean a pretty quiescent population because you've got them under house arrest, essentially. But the internet provides actually a whole new arena for people to live on by themselves and, of course, in these self-selected groups that happen online. And so you also have the possibility of a, of a lockdown creating actually a very online populace that is much more susceptible to outbreaks of emotion and, to, of, and of frustration and of long-held resentment just exploding all at once. And it does look, to me at least, that it's, it may be a permanent effect, that the levels of crime and murder in some of the major cities. Now, it's not totally correlated with where they had these demonstrations, but it's, it's not completely different than those, that we seem to have gone to a whole new different level of uh, toleration of criminality in, in our major cities that will have, obviously, I think, some serious political impacts. Um, and culturally, too, it does seem as if that psychological experience of plague allowed people to reimagine the entire world. Uh, once you s suspend people of their normal everyday quotidian lives, uh, you kind of force people to like think, well, what am I doing? Like, and, and now when they, I was, I don't know whether you were shocked by the unemployment data, but I, I, I kind of wonder, well, have people kind of also reimagined work and started looking at that in a different way? Why were we fucking working every fucking day, killing ourselves, Americans? Maybe, maybe this helps us understand we need to take a little bit more time for ourselves, even at the expense maybe of, of wealth. Um, uh, so I, I just, I, I do find that, and I also, having gone through AIDS, which was obviously a very narrow caste plague in the West, in other words, it targeted a very specific population. But to that population, the proportion of people who died was quite extraordinary. And it, in turn, required of all of us caught up in the middle of it, a real focusing of our minds on who are we? I mean, did we deserve this? Did we not deserve this? We can't put off that question anymore. And 
some of the iniquities and injustices and just awfulness of that experience led me and many others to become much more active um, in advocating and proposing uh, serious long-term change for the status of homosexuals in the society. So that too also had this very profound cultural impact in a way that I don't think, for example, that you can tell a story of the history of the gay rights movement, which is in any way independent of that epidemic. I think that epidemic is almost 70% of the, the force behind that civil rights movement. That's why it happened so quickly, because it got this extraordinary push psychologically and, 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 and collectively among gay people especially. Um, yeah, I've yeah. enjoyed, if that's not the wrong word, I, I found it fascinating to write about that because I've never really attempted to write a brief history of HIV AIDS and it was fascinating to be transported back to that time which I, I, I obviously was was following and, and, and following especially closely because of our friendship but to revisit the, the, the fundamental problems of public policy the, the, the reluctance on the part of politicians to even talk about the problem the mistakes that were made within the scientific profession as they fought over who should get the credit for identifying the virus all of this to reread it in the time of covid was to be reminded that there are certain familiar patterns that recur even if uh, a pandemic is a more slow slow moving sexually transmitted pandemic and also similarly opposition to lockdowns i mean people at the beginning were like no we're not going to close these bathhouses down fuck you uh, also, that, that, yeah, and yeah. then I mean, arguments absolutely. that the HIV was not the reason for AIDS, which continued these these anti-vaxxers, as it were, these anti these people insisting that HIV was not connected to AIDS or death, were dying while they were furiously still proclaiming this was the truth. So there's all these different things that repeat all every single time. It's but not happening. The yeah, the internet then acts as this kind of uh, turbocharger of cultish conspiracy theory uh, thinking. That's really important because uh, the HIV AIDS crisis is a pre-internet crisis, really, and, and it, it therefore is kind of played out in the columns of newspapers. Uh, but what's very interesting to me about 2020 is that it illustrated some of the points that I was making in my last book, The Square and the Tower, that we'd created a monster uh, unwittingly, that the internet had morphed structurally into an engine for the promotion of fake news and extreme views because the business model of selling ads incentivized the, the, the broadcasting of clickbait. And we never addressed that problem in any serious way after 2016, even though it was staringly obvious. So when those anti-vax networks suddenly had the raw material of COVID to work on, they were already in place uh, and already had a significant number of adherents. And a great deal of harm has come from that. It's, it's going to cause another wave, I suspect, later this year in the US, because the people who are not getting vaccinated are African Americans, conservatives in the South. I mean, those are the people who most need to get vaccinated against this virus. So yeah, there's a really interesting problem here, which I don't think we figured out how to solve, which is the problem inherent in the way the internet has configured itself uh, with the network platforms now so dominant, uh, that not only can they disseminate falsehoods about the virus and the vaccines with impunity, but they're also capable of cancelling the president of the United States if they decide to. And this is an astonishing state of affairs that we just are kind of living with. Like, oh, well, you know, we'll have some antitrust actions. That'll take care of it. That, that leaves us open to two forms of disaster next time around. Whatever the next 
shock is, who knows what it will be, cyber attack, volcano, you name it, maybe climate change, maybe the antibiotic resistance, uh, resistant bubonic plague. We'll also have an unregulated and chaotic uh, internet to make sure that the public is really properly confused about the nature of the problem. Yes, and that is incredibly difficult. And it's also incredibly difficult to get clear public health messaging across through that noise especially when some of that public health messaging turns out to be wrong or overly cautious or not cautious enough. Like, it, it, it did strike me as a pretty awful uh, decision of Fauci to tell people early on, don't bother with masks. It was, it's just like the dumbest thing imaginable. I mean, even if, even if the evidence was that we didn't yet know that an asymptomatic person could transmit the virus, why not an abundance of caution? It turns out the reason was he didn't want there to be a run on masks so the healthcare workers wouldn't have. Fine, well, so, tell us that. <laughs> tell us that. Which is what they did in Taiwan. In Taiwan, they had a shortage of masks too. But I was talking yesterday to Audrey Tang, the extraordinary uh, digital minister there, about what they did, and which was that they used they used crowdsourced uh, technology to to uh, make it clear to the public there's a shortage of masks, and we need to and we need to make sure that they go to the right places. So I do. I mean, I do offer a, a couple of takeaways, one of which is let's try to get Western governments to learn from how the Taiwanese have used technologies in ways that do not compromise civil liberties. I mean, why one would prefer house arrest to a contact tracing app, I don't know. But we aren't properly looking at the smart governments uh, in East Asia, South Korea too, to try to understand how, and this is Audrey Tang's big point, how you can use technology to empower citizens and not only give them accurate information, but help them provide information because it's a two-way flow. So I'm really interested in what the Taiwanese got right and very keen that, that more people pay attention to what Audrey Tang is saying about the technology and government. Yeah, and also, of course, there was this reflexive, immediate response that we're not going to shut borders. But that's irrational. That's xenophobia. Don't do that. Uh, but New Zealand and Australia proved that, in fact, I mean, there are obviously exceptional cases, but there was a case for shutting borders quite quickly. Uh, yes. And and that was actually the, the sooner you could do that. And yet, here's the thing. It was all the international health organizations that were saying no, that, that one feels they have also been captured in a way by a certain kind of ideology that is... Very frustrating. And the CDC, which I used to think of as really a classy operation, I mean, to fuck up the testing <laughs> the way they did. Yeah. And for no, we still don't have a really good reason for why they wouldn't let others develop these tests, except Just bureaucratic... The habit of centralization. Yes. Yeah, the habit of, of, of controlling. You know, the, this crisis unleashed a lot of um, the kind of habits, the pathologies of a bureaucratic state, and one of which is to regulate for, the, for its own sake. And California was an absolutely prime illustration of this, where non-science-based regulations were being issued, uh, apparently just for the sheer gratification of, of the bureaucrats. I mean, the closure of the public parks and the beaches, for me, was one of those moments of supreme lunacy, when it was already obvious, more than a year ago, that this thing was mostly transmitted indoors. What? You know, so I'm interested in that kind of thing, because we do have a delusion that we are very committed to individual liberty in this country. But we're not actually, because we 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 submitted to house arrest uh, in much of the country for extended periods of time. The stringency of controls in Taiwan and South Korea was much much less because they were willing to use technology in ways that we haven't even begun to to think about seriously. Anyway, hmm. well, that is that is interesting. I, I wonder whether some of these ideas about how you avoid collapse, and 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 you point out in the book how quickly certain political entities collapse. The Soviet Union is one of 
the major examples, how unexpectedly these things happen, how what seem to be stable systems politically under a certain combination of stresses can suddenly give way. And, and, and that has been, for me at least, a, a continuing growing anxiety that there are forces within American politics and American culture, which is connected with this, I, this particular epidemic and has made it worse, I think, rather than better, but that really do seem to be undermining the very principles of a liberal democracy. I mean, the, the inability to, and the refusal to see another side's point of view as opposed to wanting to judge them morally, uh, not to debate things on their merits, but to debate them purely on the personal qualities or identities of the people making these arguments. The, the way in which uh, the, the Congress is completely essentially deadlocked in almost every major issue because, not because there aren't obvious compromises on some of these issues, but because psychologically we cannot compromise anymore. And the, uh, the, the resort to technical constitutional issues, let's abolish the filibuster, let's pack the courts, uh, let's just have the president overrule the Congress or uh, insist there's an emergency and then move spending around even if the Congress doesn't want it. Let's, uh, there's a point, at, and indeed, down to the point at which the election itself, the very process by which we elect our governments, is under extraordinary attack. I mean, it is that it's regarded as by the former president of the United States and currently by the entire uh, apparatus of most of the Republican Party believes that the last election was stolen, that it was not a legitimate election, that it was rigged. And they will, and they're now changing laws and, and regulations in in some states and elsewhere, to try and prevent such a quote unquote rigging happening in the in the future. And you see with the the Cheney and the Stefanik question in, in Washington that the GOP is now committed, really in a way that it I don't think it has been uh, certainly uh, maybe occasionally in the past it has been, but it's it's it, it's pretty much opposed to sharing power. Uh, in any substantial way. Now, I, I know that you're more sympathetic in some ways to the Republican Party than I have become, um, but is there not a, a non-insignificant possibility that the political system of liberal democracy, which requires buy-in from both parties, uh, at least to the procedures of liberal politics, is, is also potentially more vulnerable than we realize or want to believe? Well, I've worried le less about this than yeah. you over the last five years. Uh, and that's not because I'm sympathetic to the modern-day Republican Party, because I think it, it took a, a, a ride on, on a tiger or uh, something along those lines back when they nominated Trump. But my view is more that the, the American system was designed for the vent eventuality of a demagogue as president and that worked well and and in that sense i never quite went for the weimar america analogy as, as you know and i i think the moment when you were kind of closest to to vindication was was january 6th but in the end as one sort of watches this play out the the motley crew of people who blundered their way into occupying the capital in one of the great policing failures of modern American history don't look to me like the brown shirts in, in 1933. No, but I, I don't believe that. that there was a, it's very Weimari. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't, I I'm not, I'm not making think, 
Okay. <laughs> Less uh, than you think. I mean, if I had a time machine and we could all go back to the Weimar Republic, which I, you know, studied. Have you, did you watch um, Doctorate? Babylon Berlin? It's not like that. Did you? I never watched TV. So the TV is a deeply, deeply unreliable medium for understanding these things. But well, read it's a, the it's diaries a, of people who were in Berlin in the 1930s and you realize it's a very different world. Of but, course it is. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not denying that. I'm just trying to understand it by some kinds of analogies. Let I would, let's go back to the Roman Republic. Let's say there, there are points in, in the Roman Republic at which institutions and procedures... We don't need to go back that far. I think we don't need to go back that far or, or that far afield. I think here's an idea. American history is usually best understood in American terms. And you and Tim Snyder and others who wanted to sort of take us to Central Europe. Don't, don't equate me to Tom Snyder. I'm not, I know, you but know. I'm not, I did, took a more, I'm just going to insist, I took a more nuanced position than that. Okay. But anyway, go I, ahead. Go ahead. I think what the real significance of, of Trump is he took us back to the 19th century. American politics has gone back to its 19th century uh, mode. If you read Dickens' account of of how American politics struck him when he visited in the 1840s. It's kind of like very, very familiar. It was uh, brutally partisan, occasionally violent, deeply corrupt, and tending towards civil war. And I buy that analogy more readily because it seems to me a lot of what's going on fits quite nicely into the 19th century failure of the Republic. It's not that I think we're heading heading for Civil War II because well, that I'm, isn't I'm just going to say that analogy is not particularly reassuring. No, no, it's not reassuring. It's it's not reassuring, but it's 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 a different way of thinking about this. Yeah, I don't think we head for Civil War II because I don't think there's this simple geographical division. The division between QAnon and 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 the wokeists is not the same as the division between the North and the South, and, and there isn't the same quality of a single issue i think and this is where we come full circle that what has happened in american public life and it's partly the internet that's done it but not wholly is that politics has left that realm of aggressive no holds barred debate that we went in for as undergraduates and become essentially a branch of religion and one either has faith in there being systemic racism, or was it one has faith in there being a conspiracy to prevent Trump re-election, but one is not really engaged in a, a rational debate about, about issues. And this return to, to religious ways of behaving and thinking, including strange language and strange rituals and strange ways of com communicating, is the thing that I find hardest to deal with. Uh, it's happening on both the left and the right. It, it has made academic life a far less uh, rewarding place to engage in intellectual activity than it was when we started out together back in the 1980s. And I, I conclude Doom with a sort of slightly different worry. I mean, I think there is, there is that potential for American politics to get more violent, but I don't think it can get anywhere close to civil war. It's just, there is a potential for it to get more violent. But I'm more worried in, in many ways by this kind of creeping totalitarianism that one, one encounters, ways of behavior that seem to me more appropriate in, in authoritarian states, denunciations, cancellations. He's a heretic. She should be deleted. And that stuff, that's depressing to me because it seems antithetical to the vigor of a free society. If we're able to come up with vaccines that are better than anybody else's, faster than anybody else, because we have still got this edge in, in STEM and science and the way that scientific ideas are applied, that is inseparable from there being free speech.
that is inseparable from there being no holds barred debate. And you have to be able to say, I disagree with this thing that you hold dear, and here's my evidence that it's wrong. If we lose that, then I think we are in a much bigger mess than if we had another civil war, because we'll actually end up losing Cold War II in that situation. The end game for me is, does totalitarianism win globally with China, or does it win internally with wokeism and the crazier excesses of the right? That would be a nightmare scenario for me. And it seems more of a clear and present danger than, than climate change. Serious, seriously, though, I take that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I think you, I hate to say this, but I think you put that rather beautifully. I, I, and I agree with you. And there is, I felt it, I mean, I was cancelled. I've been sort of uh, cancelled is not the right word. I'm still sitting here and talking to lots of thousands of people on this show. But uh, when I, when, when I, run in with the I'm what? I'm, what you had your run-in with the wokers. Yes, but I also had my run-in with the right. Uh, yep. in early, earlier on in this in this century, where my position on things like the Iraq War and torture and and fiscal matters uh, and gay rights, for example, rendered me a non-person over there, um, just as one becomes a non-person over here. Uh, and I agree, it's 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 personally and psychologically uh, very hard to sustain. A vigorous liberal society with these mentalities, uh, although they too, of course, are deeply woven into American history. I mean, the, the religious revivals, religious intolerance, uh, campaigns to flush out dissent. Uh, I wish I'd thought of the Great Awakening. It, it's, I think it was Matty Iglesias who came up with that, but that is that is brilliant, when, right? When the history books come to be written, they'll have to have a chapter, The Great Awakening. And, yeah. uh, it's a great way of summing up what this is. I, yeah. Uh, I, I agree, and and when you, but also it's the country of the Scarlet Letter. It's the country of, I mean, I in some ways I think Harvard is just returning to its roots as essentially religious indoctrination uh, place, which 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 ensures that the next elite has the right uh, religious and spiritual view of the entire society, uh, and in that matter, polices language, your sex lives, every single aspect of a human being's life. This is the other thing. They totalize, politicize everything that liberal society tends to say, no, this is a line here. You are not going to demonstrate in front of someone's private residence. That's just, that's a simple line. Because once you start doing that, there is no place for a civil public debate where people can be truly free to say what they want to think without personal adverse consequences happening to them. And the private public distinction, I think, is absolutely essential here. When you are refusing, when, when, when you said, you have an argument, and they, and, and let's say, and they come back and say, well, uh, they don't address the substance of the argument, but said, well, you would say that you're a white man, or you're a fucking lefty wokey anyway, so why should I listen to you? And you see this, I mean, you just go on Twitter, and that's basically 90% of the output or, or personal takedowns. Um, yeah, I, but that is precisely, I mean, you, I, mean I don't want to go back to Weimar, but, but there was an element in which people were talking past each other and slowly but surely moving towards that the only resolution of this is a seizure of political power and the imposition of our point of view. The, the forcible imposition of our point of view, uh, because it's that important. And doom comes into that too, because doom provides the rationale for that. If we don't do this, we're going to have a white supremacist autocratic regime in two or three years. If we don't do this, you know, uh, 
the 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 daily slaughter of African Americans is going to continue by cops and, and those things like that. These catastrophist mentalities also help ferment this. So in, in some ways, uh, I, I think the the book, the the Doom book, is a really helpful piece of context. Um, this is what history does. It tells us this is not the first time human beings have been in this position. In fact, of course, the vast majority of human life has been built on tribal power grabs, one after another, and territorial grabs one after another. The exception is a polity where freedom of speech is paramount. That's the exception to the rule. And Quite recently achieved yes, success. Yes. We perhaps didn't know it back in Oxford in in the early 1980s, but but we'd arrived just in time for a, a really quite fresh era of free speech. The real restrictions had only quite recently been lifted on, on on the press uh, in 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 Britain. I think we sometimes forget not only how recently attained truly free speech uh, was, but also I think we took took it for granted. I know I took it for granted back in the 80s, and I felt that I could say and write absolutely anything, including offensive things. I could do that without any, without fear. And is that's it, gone now. Yeah, but, and, and some would say, good, you shouldn't have been, we shouldn't have been spouting off like that just for the hell of it, uh, that we should be more measured in what, what we say. My view is rather like yours, that the, the, the precisely the achievements we have won have come from the ability and our willingness to subject our firmest convictions to scrutiny. And that without that process, especially, and this is why the universities are important, if that is a place that's lost where you can do that, then we have lost something incredibly important to a liberal society, which is why people say to me, oh, it's just a few bunch of loonies on, in colleges. I'm like, well, first of all, it isn't. But secondly, colleges are vital. That's where the entire elite is, 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 is educated. That is where liberalism, and I mean that in the broadest sense, um, if a, of a liberal society is inculcated. And when the opposite is inculcated, and amazingly, unlike us in some ways, amazingly, they want to follow their professors. They want to follow what they're told. They want authority to tell them, and then they will seek to impose their authority on others. That's a very different attitude than the not, students in sure the 60s or even students in Am I wrong? You've been on campus, I, so I... Uh, it's not quite that. It's actually the self-censorship that's really troubling, that that if you look at the survey data of both students and, and faculty of both sides of the Atlantic, the really striking features to me are the fact that people do not feel able to speak their minds in class or on campus, especially people who are conservative, but not only, and the readiness of younger faculty and PhD students to engage in cancellation uh, uh, disinvitation and having people fired for wrong think, and th there's 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 a difference there because I think the majority of undergraduates are not actually uh, particularly uh, eager to be uh, uh, to be uh, indoctrinated, but they're afraid. They're afraid of what the radical minority can do to them on social media, and the same is true amongst faculty now because. To be a professor on a major uh, uh, university campus is to be highly vulnerable to a, a dangerous uh, nexus between uh, uh, radical students, administrators who are also uh, ideologically motivated, and weak leadership, which will tend to fold 
uh, in the face of in the face of an attack. So this has created a really unhealthy atmosphere. Uh, and and I think when you wrote, and it's a while back now, we all live on campus now. You nailed it because that atmosphere has spread out from the campuses into publishing, into the newspapers, into the tech companies, and now, of course, that that last category is really important because of the power that the tech companies have. So we are something I'd never quite understood. We are creating the sort of behaviours of a totalitarian society without the totalitarian regime. Yeah, it's a sort. It turns of... out you can actually behave like you're in Stalin's Russia. You denounce people, write uh, petitions demanding colleagues be cancelled without Stalin. We we seem to have engineered this from the grassroots of university life. And I would never have foreseen that. It's been a revelation to me that people can choose to behave like they live in a totalitarian regime without the totalitarian regime. Who, who knew? I mean, well, we did know Havel to help us understand that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, Rod Dreher calls this soft totalitarianism. Like, it's a very soft thing. You, you, it's not, you're not going to be hauled in front of the Gestapo, but you will be reported. And there is... And there was this fascinating law in Scotland, actually, which suggests that you can be prosecuted for saying something in your own home if another member of your family reports you, if your kids report you to the cops for saying something that might, be, might offend some, for saying, for example, that biological sex is real. And that in itself is a, is a statement that could get you police intervention and this is in scotland this is the you know this is where the enlightenment fucking started in a way and and you go to somewhere like canada i mean it's it's it, i mean the first amendment uh, whatever prince harry says <laughs> uh, <laughs> i wonder when we get to the yes <laughs> prince harry little motherfucker um uh that was an astonishing Awful. I mean, I'm, I I used to love Harry. Harry was everybody's favorite, right? He was he was the the younger one. He was the the slightly uh, rough edged one. He was the he was his name was fucking Harry for Christ's sake, which in English history has a huge uh, sort of resonance to it in terms of the uh, in terms of merry old England. And now he's um woke. Uh, oh, I can't say those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a, a policy of mine to avoid commenting on on the royal family. Well, I do too. The time of Princess Diana. Uh, you were you were anti Diana. You. I was anti Diana. I wrote yeah. a piece uh, at, at the time of her uh, famous interview and uh, the, her true story book, with which, which the newspaper gave the unfortunate headline "Off with Her Head." <laughs> and after after she subsequently. <laughs> was killed in a road accident. Oh, I said, I'll never write about the royal family again. <laughs> so I fucker. don't, and I don't comment on any of it, <laughs> apart from the fact that it's so absurdly silly. It is silly. When you, when you also, when Meghan Markle is shocked, horrified, and didn't, had no idea that entering the British royal family would mean a lifetime of restraint, yeah. dignity, silence, and horrible emotional torture, as if the, the crown had not been running on Netflix for the last, like, several years, uh, and, and honestly never expected anybody in that family to at any point reference the fact that there will, the first time there'll be a, someone, in, someone in line to the throne who isn't completely white. Uh, of course people are going to talk like that. I mean, it's... Anyway, uh, I thought I thought the one I love Diana made, though because I maybe because I'm a big gay, but I, I <laughs> um, I've, I'm a I'm a old-fashioned Tory in these yeah, matters. Yes, and, and find myself 
admiring the Queen and the monarchy more since I moved to the United States. Yeah, I, I uh, because there is something to be said for taking uh, some of the things off the political table, and the the, the personification of sovereignty in uh, Her Majesty the Queen has has actually been very good for Britain. And uh, I I I'm more of a monarchist actually since I since I moved moved here because I think the elected uh, head of state model is actually fraught with peril. And uh, yeah, imagine if Boris were president. I mean, oh God, it'd be awful. I would hate it. I mean, we, <laughs> should we talk about Boris for a second since we both came across him? You knew him better than I did back then, right? Did you not? We, we, were both we never got on. We, we were all in the well, union I mean, uh, together. Um, well, you were, you and he were successful, and I was not. Well, that just speaks to your slightly. your superior. No, my <laughs> chronic unelectability. <laughs> I don't know how I got through either. It was quick. I realized if I yeah, got to do this good. before anybody catches on, so I, I went very quickly to get that, that position. Your, your 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 legions of followers would certainly be startled if they were to see the the Andrew Sullivan I knew uh, who became president of the union and Pickett. head of the Poostick Society. <laughs> uh, but but looking back on 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 Boris's ascent. Two things strike me: one, that he he'd already figured out his act even before he got to. Oxford, oh yeah, it was, was brilliant. Play the part of a bumbling uh, upper class uh, twit in such a genial way that uh, people were disarmed, and then then ruthlessly to pursue his own his own self gratification. And I think it's self gratification. There's no other point uh, that I can see to what Boris does, and I I I'm truly astonished that it has worked so well that he's that he's become prime minister i, I sometimes i'm not wonder if I'm, not, I'm dreaming and i'll wake up no i could absolutely see it from the get-go i was always surprised he didn't do better i mean sooner um partly because i was charmed by him uh at oxford and i had all my instincts were anti-etonian anti-upper class extremely this is why i have a slight problem with being called privileged i'm like that's just not part of my psyche i just don't get that i hated the privilege but uh yeah no i could see that this man was a performer he was genial he was funny he he, he made you feel smart even though he was plenty smart uh but lazy as fuck and uh what struck me going back and trying to understand him, although I, 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 I think I do understand his political appeal, it makes absolute sense to me, uh, and especially the appeal, the classic old Tory aristocratic appeal to the British working classes, which, is a, uh, which he's revived in a way that, that really is kind of striking from, from Thatcher. It's a very different Toryism, but Toryism is a very broad, broad church. No, but what struck me also going back and talking to all my friends who knew him and other people, all the people you probably know, and... Uh, they all hated him. They all, the, the personal, the personal animus towards him was really shocking. Because I think he'd lied to every single one of them at some point in such a fantastic and irresponsible way that he had broken trust with everybody in the elite. And the, the Brexit decision was like the final straw for those people because they thought that was just completely naked political, cynical ambition. But that's what successful politicians are. I mean, right. and, and, and that's what he's done. And he also has what every successful politician has, which is a huge amount of luck, which, is, which of course has helped. But it's still, to my mind, a striking model for the reinvention of conservatism in Britain that the Americans have not quite grasped or understood. And instead, he's right. not a cult figure like Trump. 
He actually does things, has actually implemented things, um, and uh, and is more in tune, I think, with the the mood of the public than many other people in the elite, and that's what's uh, that's what's so striking about him. Um, it's Disraelian, isn't it? I mean, Disraeli was no more uh, a, a part of the the English aristocracy than than Boris, but both. Uh, claimed to believe in the traditional institutions of England and at the same time appeal to the working class. So I think there's a much more of Disraeli than of Churchill in Boris. Yes. It's always Churchill that he wants to, to pretend to be, but that's actually uh, that's actually what he is. And Except well, Disraeli, you know, of course, was a very gifted writer and, and Boris not so much. I mean, well, I'm just, sure Boris could be a good writer, but it, it would take much more work and application than and he's tended to show. He's I, also I, shown I, that you can fuck anything that moves and it yeah. doesn't matter anymore. It's sort of the Disraeli meets John F. Kennedy piece, which is kind of hard to, to, to process. But having, you know, failed at, at Oxford politics, to watch somebody go all the way to the top uh, is remarkable, especially when along the way there have been so many things that would have ended the career of an ordinary mortal. I mean, I sometimes think of Boris as having kind of failed his way to the top because he he made many tremendous mistakes as a journalist and, and it, it kept on happening. And yet somehow he, he gets to the top of the greasy pole. And when I try to think about how that came about, I, I can only conclude that there is some quite powerful and hard to replicate superpower that has led Boris to take <laughs> decisions and make moves that that have that have come off the gambling that went on in in 2019 after he became leader and prime minister was extraordinary and i was sure would end in disaster i was quite convinced that he had put himself into an impossible position and he got out of it partly through dominic cummings's brilliance now that dominic is gone he's become a sworn enemy i wonder where this goes because Boris plus Dom was a formidable combination. The charm with the the smarts, without Cummings, with with the first girlfriend making the decisions. There's there's clearly going to be some great and very tabloid-worthy end to this story, Andrew. Hmm. I mean, it's not going to end with a state funeral and and uh, the masses weeping. Boris is going to go out with some magnificent scandal involving a woman <laughs> and, and money. And it, it'll just be, I can't, let's do a special dead episode of the podcast. <laughs> when Boris implodes. Uh, yeah, well, you know, well, it's been predicted. It hasn't happened yet. He's, he's a, he'll reinvent himself. And it, it's, it's, it's a Your huge... point about the politics is important. To come up with a formula for conservatism that is not mad, that, it, that takes the, uh, the, first principles of parliamentary democracy and and adheres to them and then sells them to a working class that is totally disillusioned with progressivism and social democracy that it seems to me is what american conservatives have completely failed to figure out and yeah that that's the thing i was deeply impressed by the election in 2019 and i, I remain impressed by the ability of uh, of boris's conservatives to to take it to labor and and win without going down the, the, the populist wormhole, because in the end, Brexit was not Trump. I mean, that, that equation that many people made in 2016 is, is ultimately wrong, because Brexit led somewhere. Right. 
And actually, Brexit was vindicated by the vaccination story. For people like me who were Remainers, you finally had to sort of look at the situation that earlier this year say, well, actually, here finally is the vindication of Brexit, because the Europeans screwed it up by wanting to centralize the distribution of the vaccines. And Britain went its own way and did much, much better. So the substance of, of Brexit is important. And those of us who were against it have to acknowledge that. Uh, and again, there is, I think, no analogy in, in, in American conservative politics today. No, I think there is, there is a potential. And Trump, in various ways, accidentally showed that potential. Oh, yeah. But it's only ever about him. And what I was hoping is that there might be some recognition. I wrote this column last week, actually, the massive missed opportunity of the Republicans, is that if someone could emerge that would, that would somehow defang the Trump cray-cray, but do something like a more like a like a Romney style uh, new family credit or some tax breaks for the poor, some tax increases for the very wealthy um, infrastructure in a big way and tight, tough on immigration and tough and on crime. trade and crime. Yes, of course. That's it's right there. And I, I think, think at this point, Trump is that. Trump is in the way of it. Trump is 100%. in the way of it and, and getting him out of it, which is, seems to be impossible. It really does seem as if it has become a cult, a real cult that can't let go of this guy. And he can let go of it and in such a way that it's about nothing and nobody but this man. And, and it's a terribly unhealthy situation. Um, Neil, we could go on forever, and we normally we do. We have gone on forever. And at this we point, we have gone forever. It's actually Wednesday. It's now Wednesday. I think. It may <laughs> the, even be Friday. The, the difference is, we <laughs> Joe would normally. Rogan, Joe Rogan is worried that we're about <laughs> to break the record for longest podcast and displace him from the Guinness Book of Records. Well, I remember. Uh, usually, <laughs> okay, this is what we used to do actually back in our Oxford days. I remember the very, very uh, drunken New Year's Eve. Remember that in Scotland? I went up, uh, stayed with you, I do. and uh, I do. we got unbelievably drunk and cut each other's ties up, I seem to recall. Yes, it's uh, a very Marx Brothers thing to do, <laughs> but almost certainly redolent of and for a, And for about two or three days, we spoke in nothing but Geordie accents until your parents went absolutely... <laughs> take on a... Only one thing more annoying, and that's the Northern Irish accent. But the Geordie accent, I remember very well. We used to use it often. Yes, we did. Uh, when the, the board, when the board comes in, you can't do accents anymore. You can't do accents anymore because oh, of course it's you can. Either cultural appropriation or you're 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 being offensive and triggering. I mean, you could probably still make fun of the white working class in Britain. I think that's that's still allowed. But I think most of the accents that we spent our boyhoods mastering, we we would not dare use even on your podcast. I just we remember stop now that great Monty Python. Um, reenactment of, uh, of, of an Elizabethan drama in China called I Elizabeth L. <laughs> and South Park still does it. Like, you know, welcome South to Shittywalk. Can I have your order now, please? Is, is, Isn't is, is, it great that South Park still exists? Oh, it's God, like, yes. It's like, yeah, sig a signal that we're still picking up from an earlier era. No. Yeah, you introduced me to, you introduced me to South Park. You, I remember well, watching my first episode of South Park with you way back. Yes. And you'll be glad to hear that I introduce it to my children. That is very important. And, and it's still going strong. And Matt and Trey are still doing what they do. Um, they're geniuses. They are geniuses. And, and in many different ways, they're geniuses. And, and they've been incredibly culturally important. Uh, I say that even though uh, Matt's a friend of mine and, and uh, I, I, I love him as a person, but as, a, as an actual skilled writer, 
uh, and skilled actor. The acting that they do is also pretty fucking amazing. If Tra- they come for South Park, if they come for well, South they Park. will, you know, and they have. And You've got to remember the, the the Islamists came for South Park, if you remember. I mean, they had the Buddha do. doing a line of coke. Our household <laughs> follows these matters quite. Closely, oh, of course, yes. I guess. Uh, yes. Speaking of which, I'm going to wrap it up by saying my best to Ayan, my best to Thomas. And to your other kids, whom I, I know, and uh, my godson, even. And I very much hope we'll get to see each other soon. We never do. It's, it was stuck on different coasts. Um, and well, we, we just were... figured out how to do it. We, find, we, found a, we found a way to have yeah. one of those long, self-indulgent conversations. Bloody hell, we did. We did. <laughs> well, <laughs> at, that, at that point, I will, I will say bye to you, Neil. Um, Thank you very much, let's, 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 get in, let's stay in touch and talk soon when we can actually get drunk and, and make all sorts of uh, politically incorrect jokes about ourselves and everyone else. It's been a privilege, old boy. Yeah, can't use that word, but yes, it's been, it's, it's been a real bloody white, it's been a white privilege. It's been great. It's, it's been, been great. great. It's been bloody good. <laughs> Just let the good old days. Yeah. Cut. Bye, you all. We'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see, we have, we have Charles Murray coming up. On the pod, <gasps> on the discast. <gasps> two hours of Charles Murray. Two hours. Can you believe it? Bring it on. I I'll know. That's what I say. Avidly. Bring it I'll the fuck avidly. on, Wokies. <laughs> <laughs> Come and get me, you fuckers. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, at that point, before we really do regress, <laughs> bloody hell, these bloody working woke wankers. Um, we'll, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>